Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. Today, we're going to talk about traumatic brain injury and that how that impacts your brain in the longer term. Uh, it's a topic uh, near and dear to my heart. I just dropped off my son at college. He's a rugby player. Um, so I want to know, too, how does um, concussion, hits to the head, impact our health in the longer term? Well, I'm really happy uh, to have with us Dr. Bruce Lamb. He's executive director of the Stark Neurosciences Research Institute at Indiana University. Dr. Lamb, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad, glad to be with you. So let's just start um, first and foremost with what you are looking for um, when we say how does traumatic brain injury um, relate to longer-term brain health? Um, what exactly are you researching? Yeah, um, so let me first um, just sort of start out maybe with some of just basic definitions, I guess. Um, so one of the things, there's a wide variety of types of brain injuries that occur from some of the ones that you suggested, a concussion, which is sort of the typical ones we think of regarding sports. But then there are other types of brain injuries from car accidents to you know, uh, individuals who are in the military who get exposed to blast injuries. So there's a wide variety of different types of injuries. Um, and each one of those obviously has very different outcomes uh, for both the people who are impacted them and their families. Um, and so, but there's been interesting um, interest in sort of understanding though how you know, different type, those different types of injuries might later impact, you know, later in life, um, the development of dementia or other uh, neurological disorders. And for a very long time, I think there's been uh, sort of trying to look at chicken and egg type questions. Like if you get a brain injury, are you really at higher risk for developing late onset neurogenic diseases? Um, and that's been a very difficult thing to study. But recently, I would say, especially over the past couple of years, there's some very, very large studies, uh, one, a Danish study uh, that's looked at this, and then one in the United States um, looking at sort of the veterans uh, community out of the, out of the VA health system that suggests, you know, in looking at individuals who've been exposed, and this is usually a moderate to severe traumatic brain injury. So this is not a concussion, uh, but this is sort of moderate to severe brain injury, that there's an increased risk um, by about 20% plus or minus, depending upon the study, of later life development of dementia, and that's sort of of all causes. So this is a memory impairment later in life that, that could be Alzheimer's disease, but also Parkinson's disease, as well as some of the other late life uh, neurodegenerative diseases. And so I think those are the ones that really have led us to start thinking, okay, what could be then the biological link? Why would a brain injury then later, many, many decades later, lead to sort of this increased risk for dementia? Um, and so that's really where my lab is focused on, is trying to understand that biology. Um, so can we liken it to a scar um, when something happens in our brain? Obviously, when inflammation is meant to protect us, right, to heal us um, to a certain extent. Um, but is it is it actually the inflammatory process where something that triggers something to go terribly wrong in, in the longer term? Yeah, so I think there's increasing evidence um, that immunity sort of is, a, is definitely a double-edged sword. So um, on the one hand, it's activated a following injury, brain injury for sure, within the brain and also peripherally. And uh, there's an activation of the immune system, which is really critical, right, for protecting us and helping us to survive that immediate injury. 
but especially in the nervous system, there's now accumulating evidence that that more of a chronic activation of that immune system then can ensue, which then is the thing that longer term can lead to, to detrimental outcomes. So again, um, the neurodegeneration or, or, or dementia. Uh, and so I think that's trying to understand, you know, where, how does that happen? What's the, the, the balance between sort of this really important aspects of the immune function versus those that ultimately we think might lead you know, to the, to the, the dementia uh, further downstream? So we know um, the presumed pathology of Alzheimer's disease being, um, you know, the plaques and the tangles um, and then later inflammation. Is there something we can equate um, with, you know, uh, traumatic brain injury um, that gives us more plaque or, um, in the brain or more tangles, more inflammation? Do we know that yet? Sure. So there have been some studies done in animals, um, you know, um, for the most part, that's where this work is being done, looking at different types of brain injury. Uh, and again, the models of brain injury are different as well as what humans are exposed to. Then there's a whole variety of different types of injury models that are that are done as well. Um, and really, um, most of those studies um, have suggested indeed that there are potential interactions between brain injury and an ultimate development of, of amyloid and tau pathology. And so we have several um, different studies that we've been working on, as well as other groups in, in the field. Uh, and there certainly are, I think, are some links. So for example, one of the things that's well known to occur following brain injury is induction of this one protein uh, called the amyloid precursor protein, which is actually the precursor to amyloid, um, which is the thing that gets deposited in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. And so just the fact that you get this activation of APP expression following brain injury, I think is a really significant um, effect of, of injury and may, again, have this impact later on, which is what the animal models uh, suggest. And then the other time in terms of tau, we have some data um, that we were currently working on that in models where we have a genetic mutation that reduces this one immune molecule that we focus on that's been associated with Alzheimer's disease, uh, it's called TREM2. And this gene is this, and this protein is only on immune cells. It's not actually expressed on neurons and, and other brain cells, actually. And so uh, we have now looked at, okay, well, if we mutate that particular gene as seen in Alzheimer's disease, how does that impact uh, the brain injury response? And that's very interesting. It definitely affects that immune response, that activation of immunity following brain injury. But then what it also does is later on, it affects the development of tau pathology uh, much later in life. Um, so again, it suggests that there is this early uh, event which is impacting, but that's having an effect much, much later uh, in, in your life, uh, at least in the animal studies. Okay, and we're getting some questions in from our viewers. Um, one of them asking, what is the criteria, what, what criteria is used to differentiate between uh, different brain injuries? And, you know, I know we had gotten these questions b before, and I've often wondered as a mom of an athlete, um, is one blow to the head, a bad blow, enough to set off a process that would, uh, is believed to increase your risk of, of dementia, get, getting dementia later in life? Yeah, that's that's a really important question. And I would argue one we really still don't have a great answer to yet. Um, because um, again, most of this, um, these the studies that have been done so far are, um, are retrospective where you just try to associate, okay, based on the records, the health records, okay, this person was exposed to a brain injury. And now you're, you know, you say, are they at increased risk of developing dementia? But that's all sort of retrospective, looking backwards. Um, 
And there are now some currently some big trials underway looking trying to do more what we call prospective studies, which means enrolling people who are at increased risk for um, sort of head injuries and then following them and sort of seeing are they indeed at increased risk, those particular. And that will also help us determine what types of injuries are likely to be the ones that might be the most problematic. Um, so, for example, there is a, a big study in the, uh, out of the NCAA, uh, out of college athletics, um, actually, it's being head, it's headquartered here. Um, a study led by Tom McAllister, who's the chair of psychiatry at IU School of Medicine, to really look at this. So they're enrolling uh, NCAA athletes from all across the country. Uh, they're then following them uh, again as they get exposure to a variety of different types of injuries, including concussion, uh, and then studying what impact does that have on them, you know, over time. Uh, and I think those are really important questions that we don't really have a great answer to. We know certainly that there, especially for concussion, uh, I think the evidence is increasing that certainly multiple concussions over a, a, quite a prolonged period of time, for example, in some of the NFL players clearly can lead to, you know, again, this chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a, another neurodegenerative disease, although it's different uh, than Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so, but we still don't know, again, what types of injuries ultimately lead to CTE some people seem to develop it and others don't. Why is that? Uh, so those are things we still don't really understand. Presumably, though, it will take quite a bit of time to determine that. Um, I mean, are there studies that are further down the pipeline? We know, you know, there's um, a percentage of football players who do indeed um, get dementia. Um, so what have we learned so far about, uh, you know, just taking the football population? Yeah, so I mean, both football and then also professional athletes, uh, uh, professional fighters, so boxers and mixed martial artists, I mean, uh, they're both at definitely large increased risk for developing dementia later in life. In fact, there's, again, this traumatic, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy is the one biggest risk for those those two populations. Um, and again, but it's not all of them. Uh, so that's, that's the, the interesting thing. And so we still don't really understand why is it that some of these, these uh, athletes do ultimately develop, you know, this neurodegenerative conditions, whereas others don't. Is it, as you suggested, you know, the type of injury that they're getting or the frequency of that injury or, you know, other, other factors, genetics, other, other factors that we still don't really understand. And so I think these, Again, these longitudinal studies are really important because now they're also one of the big problems has been there's no way to really quantify. And I think that's one of the questions you were trying to, to ask. Uh, how do we quantify sort of brain injury in a way that's helpful? Uh, and that is starting to change now because now they have new technologies for helmets and um, or, or mouth guards that have, you know, like accelerometers and, you know, other, other types of devices that can real time quantify sort of the type of injury. Is it rotational injury? Is it you know what what types of injuries are really occurring in in real time, and then send that you know to the sideline for for again uh, physicians to look at and also try to start assessing okay is somebody and a really they just got an injury which is really significant and we need to take them out um, off the field to not play anymore uh, and so those are the, that's where the field is definitely moving and I think so over the next five to ten years I think we'll have a much better idea of what type of injury is, is the one that's really problematic? Um, and that will be helpful because it allows us to make decisions about you know, whether somebody should go back, you know, into for the military, whether they should go back into the 
into the field or for athletes, whether they should go back to play uh, in the sports. Is there, um, I've often wondered with soccer, um, the, the rugby player son also played soccer, but I'm just, I've often wondered about heading the ball because I know that there's been a lot of talk and there's been articles written on the, uh, the repeated impact of heading a ball. Is that enough to actually cause damage? I mean, when we talk about football players, right. we're talking about getting slammed in the head, but uh, is, is that kind of reoccurring heading of the ball? Are soccer players involved in any of these studies in order to determine whether, I mean, cause that, that's not considered a concussion, but that's, that's. Right. Yeah, then there's these, what we would call sort of sub-concussive <laughs> injuries, right? Where, which is a wide, even wider variety of, um, of people getting yeah, hit in the head by a ball. Um, my daughter was, was a volleyball player. She got hit on the head with a, with a ball to the head and dropped to the ground. And, uh, you know, and again, this, I had immediately the wrong response, which we also recognized, which was, oh, she should get back in and, and play again, which is not the, the correct response in that situation. And, and so it, it is a risk, um, you know, in a variety of sports and a variety of conditions. Um, I think, um, so I'm trying to remember your question now. Um, no, I'm saying to the different degrees of, of getting hit from soccer players to football. Yeah, um, so there's, there's, there's not a lot of data yet on, on soccer players in particular. There are a couple, again, these are case reports though, of soccer players who then later went on to develop Again, this chronic traumatic encephalopathy, but it's very few. And again, we don't know how that relates to the entire group of soccer players, right? We just know that, okay, there's a couple cases. So we don't really know the true, what we call incidents of this in people who've played soccer for a living or over many, many, many years. So that's another area that we really don't have a lot of information yet is what the real risk is right now. So you you talked about your daughter and and the wrong reaction versus the right reaction, um, and we have a question that's come in related to that. But first, let me say, what is the right thing to do if you do suffer a blow to the head? Yeah, I mean the, the most important thing is to you know again not because the, the data that if you have a concussion and then you have a second one, uh, particularly in a fairly close proximity, that that outcomes across the board are are much worse. So I think that is the one thing we know fairly clearly. And so the recommendations really are, uh, if you have a concussion and even maybe some of these subconcussive blows that athletes should sit out um, and, and, and again, and get evaluated for, okay, have they had a concussion? How bad is it? And they can go through these tests uh, of balance, of, of memory, of language, all of those types of tests, which are gonna assess whether somebody has a concussion. In my daughter's case, that indeed, you know, then the next day or and, and weeks, you know, followed that she indeed had a concussion and had all the typical features of a concussion, light sensitivity, headaches, uh, you know, the, the very traditional sort of view of a concussion. But again, right immediately afterwards, I think our just natural response is, oh, if you've gotten hit, you should get back up and and, and go back in. And I think that's the thing we really have to work as a, as a community and a society to sort of say, you know, there are situations where, um, you know, we need to pull people out and sort of assess, okay, how are they doing before they can go back in? So this is an appropriate time. Another question has come in saying, does traumatic brain injury affect the ability of the brain to get the energy it needs through the blood-brain barrier? Um, studies report that TBI decreases the ability of glucose to cross the blood-brain barrier. Uh, are there any differences 
in the type and the extent of inflammation found with a TBI that uh, found with individuals, you know, versus uh, those who had Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we are just, again, at the beginning stages of understanding this. Um, so we know that um, following most of the least of the, the, the more traumatic injuries, the, the moderate to severe injuries, the blood-brain barriers was suggested. And, and for those who don't know in the audience, is our barrier which protects our brain basically from the peripheral immune system. So we're not having peripheral immune cells entering and causing damage in the brain. Um, but in injury, it can get damaged and can actually lead to leakage of the bronchite barrier. So then peripheral immune cells and other um, nutrient, all different kinds of things can come now come into the brain. And um, I think there is certainly evidence that that could potentially be part of you know, what's happening in traumatic brain injury is that one of the interesting things for the, chromatic, the chronic traumatic encephalopathy is where the pathology occurs uh, later on uh, after many, many years of, of these concussions is actually around blood vessels. Um, and, and so it really suggests that again, there's something locally about how those vessels are responding to injury, which is then sort of ultimately inducing that type of, of pathology. And so I think that's a really interesting question. Um, one of the big problems we have with immune uh, system and studying this in the brain uh, is we don't have a lot of great ways to study this in living people. Um, so again, there are starting to be now some ways to do brain imaging to look at the immune system, but we're still very much at the infancy there of really being able to assess, again, is the immune system activated and, and what does that mean uh, you know, for patients? So we've had this conversation um, during brain talks when we were talking about ketones as an alternative source of fuel for your brain, um, ketones being um, an energy source that does cross the blood brain barrier, uh, you know, our tr traditional ways with glucose. Um, but why not study, and this was a nutritional scientist um, who um, suggested that more needs to be studied about whether or not um, ketones, if you, if you force or you supplement ketones with people who have had um, a traumatic brain injury, does that help in the repairing process? I mean, do we know anything about that? Um, not that I'm aware of. Again, that, that I'm not aware of that literature. I'm sure there are people who are, are starting to look at that, but I'm not aware of that literature. Is it something that would make sense to you? Um, I mean, I think there certainly is interest in, you know, how metabolism changes, you know, over time and how, you know, we might do things to you know, protect. Because um, again, I think there is this, this, this acute window, you know, again, when some of these things are happening and if we can intervene in this immediate um, aftermath of these injuries, we might have the most chance of success of blocking downstream factors. But I think right now we're still struggling to understand the biology, you know, really at the end of the day, you know, what is the biology? And that will then I think ultimately help us sort of figure out, okay, what should an intervention look like? Should we change metabolism? Should we change immune system? Should we, I mean, what are the different things that we should be doing? And I think that's still not entirely clear. Okay, and we, we have um, a lot of questions coming in right now. One um, which seems to come up a lot, um, uh, this viewer says, I've read that um, traumatic brain injury can trigger depression and increase the risk of suicide. Do we know the mechanism that causes that? How does uh, memory loss factor in? Yeah, that's a great question. We don't really know. Um, so there's also, um, 
you know, some, and this is where it really gets into the complexity of this. Um, so there's also evidence, especially in the in the military uh, situation for brain injuries. Those those um, folks are also at increased risk for post-traumatic stress disorder and you know a variety of things uh, related to that, including depression and suicide. And so I think we don't really understand. They obviously are they're somehow linked together uh, in terms of you know these folks both are at increased risk for PTSD but they're also at increased risk for dementia. And so how do those two intersect? And I don't think we really have a good idea yet of what those different levels of intersection are. Uh, and it's one of the, the, the difficult things for us to, to study this, uh, again, because we're usually based on these retrospective studies looking backwards as opposed to sort of following people over time. Someone else has asked um, if there are any studies going on right now involving people who have dementia and also who have suffered traumatic brain injury or multiple yeah. concussions. Yeah, and there are there is definitely a lot of work being done there uh, for sure. And in fact, um, you know, falls uh, just generally in the elderly are, are one of the biggest risk factors we have for sort of outcomes of all, all sorts. But including even there's some evidence that even in, in dementia patients, that the trajectory, if then they're exposed to a, a brain injury through a fall, that their outcomes are going to be worse. Um, and so I think that that is pretty clear. Um, you know that those those are folks definitely that the brain injury is probably you know, obviously not a good thing, and we should try to figure out how to reduce the uh, falls at all costs. Um, there, I think there's some interesting new, um, starting to be some interesting new technologies. There's there's some of these. Um, it's like our watches and our electronic devices um, are now are being able to be used in some early studies um, looking at, uh, and you can do this again from offsite. So if somebody is obviously uh, carrying one of their, a watch or an electronic device, they can then study even things like the gait, you know, how is somebody walking and how are they interacting with the world and are they at a like or likely increased risk for a fall? And if you could identify patients who are at increased risk for a fall, I think all the evidence suggests that could dramatically impact then, you know, their, the, if those patients go into a nursing home and all, all the things that are downstream of that. So I think that those are some really interesting areas right now that I think there's a lot of research going on at the moment. We had a, a few questions um, coming in, and you talked a little bit in the context of your daughter and what would be the appropriate protocol after uh, getting hit in the head um, during a, a sports injury. But um, when is testing necessary? Um, you know, one viewer is asking when um, when when should you get neuropsychological um, testing, uh, brain scans? Um, you know. Is there a way, is there something that we can see to say, okay, you need to stay out or you really need to recover for this period of time? Right. Um, what can people find out themselves if they've suffered brain injury or have a loved one who has? Sure. Of course, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, the, the thing to do, and I mean, I think for the athletes now, there's more and more, you know, physicians, um, you know, or, or physician assistants who are sort of on the sidelines and, you know, it, it most of, especially in the NCAA and, and the professional sports for sure, who are there and they're there primarily to um, provide those levels of assessments. And so most of that right now is again done by um, just clinical assessment, again, doing certain features that we know are part of concussion from, again, balance and memory and, and language, uh, and a variety of tests. 
And what is done typically in the in the professional sports, and I think it's also done in college sports, is usually they will even assess people, um, all the athletes in the preseason before they've actually started. And then that way, when they get into a game, they can assess their function relative to how they're performing before they started uh, the season. And that's sort of basically how this is done. So then it's assessment of sort of how they're performing relative to their baseline before. Uh, and so obviously the, the key there uh, is that that baseline has to be, be performed, you know, honestly, you know, so uh, I've, I've heard some, some, some rumors that some of, some of the athletes will perform poorly on that preseason test intentionally so that then if something does happen, they'll be more likely to be able to continue to play, um, especially in some of the professional uh, athletes where this is their livelihood. Um, and so I think that, you know, is typically how it's done right now. As I was mentioning, what I think where the field is moving is now starting to be able to again develop ways where we can assess the, the type of injury that's occurring, and then be able to make assessments based on that. So if we have again mouth guards that have these, you know, accelerometers and gyrometers which are in our phones or or, or on the helmet or you know different things like that. And be able to, in live time, on the sidelines, assess: okay, who, who, you know, what was that hit? And what was the rotation? What was the acceleration? And based on that, should that person be pulled out um, of, of the game? And so, I think that's where the field is going. But for right now, it's basically done by you know clinical assessment. So, in a high school sport, uh, which is where my daughter was, obviously, we just then relied on you know her uh, reporting again what she was experiencing, and the minute she sort of was talking about again the clinical symptoms of uh, you know light uh, photophobia, the light sensitivity, uh, the headaches, the you know nausea, all all the classic signs of concussion. You know we realized okay, and I think that's what I would recommend to anybody in that situation to take her uh, to the pediatrician and or the pediatric neurologist, probably most particularly who specializes in concussion and can assess them, and then also develop a plan for helping them because again, the other aspect of the concussion is then obviously the follow-up. Uh, and some um, some people respond and can recover very quickly and, and are back, you know, functioning very, very quickly. And then there's others, again, which struggle with this for, for, for many months or even years in some cases. And again, we still don't understand that even. You know, so why is it that some of these people who have concussion just don't respond positively the way others really do? Has there been any studies on um, the the where the impact is on the head and whether or not that puts you more at risk? There's starting to be. Again, up, up in the past, you know, this wasn't really sort of monitored in terms of any any in any clever way. I think again with some of these new technologies, I think we're going to start to see this, especially like for example, in this the, some of these these more recent studies where they're now using ways to assess both quantify, and also localize where the injuries are occurring. Uh, and I think that's going to be the key uh, for moving forward. Are we looking, I mean, we know, you know, there are people who have um, genetic uh, risk and elevated genetic risk to Alzheimer's disease, um, namely the APOE4 community, um, depending on whether they have one or two variants, um, elevates their risk of um, getting Alzheimer's disease. Are we studying um, that population in the context of, of traumatic brain injury? Yeah, there's been a bunch of work um, done there, um, trying to look at you know the impact of, of APOE on um, sort of this the risk um, 
relative to, to brain injury. Um, and there, the data is sort of, there's, there's a bit of controversy, I'd say. There's some data that certainly suggests that those people are at also at increased risk for negative outcomes with regards to brain injuries. Uh, but there's, there's been some studies which have shown that there's really no effect. Um, we are currently doing some studies right now in, in animals that we've generated, which have or carry the human APOE isoforms and are looking particularly at this. One of the interesting things about APOE, um, which I think may relate again to this, to um, the risk in terms of brain injury, is that one of the things that's recently come out about APOE is that it is um, one of the genes that's most upregulated in the immune cells, actually, uh, in Alzheimer's disease. And so this is, this is kind of a new and interesting finding. It's only been about the past year that we've appreciated this. Um, and so I think that suggests potentially APOE is playing a role in the immune system, which I think previously we really didn't appreciate. Um, and so I think that is a, is a brand new area. And I think you're gonna see a lot more both relationships to brain injury um, and how the immune system is activated, but also in, in Alzheimer's disease as well. Okay, and we, we have a, a question from a viewer who says, my 61-year-old brother fell a year ago and got a TBI. Uh, he's had to relearn everything, walking, talking, eating, math, driving, house ma maintenance, everything. He doesn't have dementia, but his symptoms today remind me very much of dementia. Could he be developing dementia? That, that poses an interesting question there. So at what point do you know that it's related to traumatic brain injury or it's actually led to dementia. Right, yeah, and that's difficult with that age population as well because that's right about the age when dementia starts to increase in incidence. Uh, before that, obviously, it's not normally seen, so it would be very, very abnormal to see. But once you get 60, 65, you're already you know close to five to 10% of the population may um, already have um, dementia, and so, that's a very difficult thing to assess because obviously, you know, we don't know if if a single if a person hadn't been exposed to that brain injury, what would be their their functioning? Uh, and I would sort of say the only thing we can do is figure out, okay, what are the things that we can do to support, you know, people who have those types of injuries? Um, obviously, by seeing physicians and following them, but you know, then even things uh, we do, you know, and recommend even for Alzheimer's patients at this point from you know, physical exercise, uh, certainly I think all the evidence is supportive that you know, that's something that is, is good for our brain and potentially may help reduce risk, um, you know, uh, of dementia of all causes um, to, you know, again, eating a heart, uh, eating a heart healthy diet. I think, again, the, the evidence is pretty strongly suggestive that that's also good for our brains in a variety of different situations, including potentially in uh, following brain injury. So those are the things that, again, I think, you know, uh, and, and it is, it's a great question though. My, my um, sister actually has had multiple pretty significant, like three significant injuries, uh, including, you know, head injuries. Uh, and, you know, so again, then she's self-reporting again, self-confusion or other things and you're, you can't really know, is that related to the brain injury? Is that something that would have happened irrespective of that? Um, again, so I think it's, it's a huge challenge. So, um, you know, obviously this is a relatively new area of research. Um, so I'm curious to know, what have we learned in recent years that we didn't know? Um, and where really should the focus be, um, you know, in the, the next five or 10 years? 
Sure. So I think where the field has been uh, has really been just trying to assess: is there really any, you know, an association um, between brain injury and, and neurodegeneration more generally? Um, and I think that, you know, especially with some of these later studies I was just mentioning, I think it's starting to become clearer that because we've, earlier on there were studies that sort of said there was, or studies that said there weren't, and so. I think as a field that was struggling to sort of say, okay, well, how do we assess whether this is really important or not? But now some of these most recent studies are, are so large, there are tens of thousands of patients over many decades that are being studied. And I think this, you know, and, and, and there's significant changes for sure, I think. And so the, that evidence to me is now pretty strong. And the same thing with, with chronic traumatic encephalopathy. We now, I think, are pretty confident that this is a real phenomenon uh, that is occurring. Uh, and so the really questions now become, you know, okay, what, like just as we were talking about earlier, what are the types of injuries that, that move us towards that? Um, can we identify what those are? Can we you know, figure out what the biology is? Why is that that it occurs in some people and not others? Uh, and I think that's really right now where the research is focused. Okay, yes, we think that there's definitely a link here, and now we need to understand, you know, what is that link? So we often um, get people asking, how do they participate in trials? Uh, you know, maybe they've had a series of brain injuries. Like, what? Uh, who's the perfect candidate, and how do they find out about how to get involved in a trial? Sure. Um, so I mean, there are multiple. It's mostly occurring at the academic medical centers, um, you know, across the country, the major ones, uh, where there are ongoing clinical studies, including just observational studies, obviously just trying to follow people and understand how they're exposed. Some of these longitudinal studies that I mentioned, like for the NCAA, is occurring uh, nationwide. Uh, there's there's other studies of professional fighters out in in, in Las Vegas. Uh, and then there's just studies going on at academic medical centers. Typically, for a lot of the brain injuries, these, these are occurring either in departments of neurosurgery, because again, that's where a lot, especially the more moderate to severe injuries are, are coming there, um, or in the departments of psychiatry and neurology. Probably those are the three areas where you'll see uh, people coming in. And I would argue that most academic medical centers have a program of research going on uh, relating to brain injury, including some clinical trials, depending on the location. So, are we? Is there is there anyone looking for? Um, is it is it focused mainly on the behavioral studies, or is there actually um, some sort of medication or something to treat brain injury in a different way based on traumatic um, brain injury? Yeah, so no, there are clinical trials going on right now uh, for a variety of different, um, you know, and have been going on. Um, I wouldn't say there's anything yet out there that's you know, shown enough promise to then get approved by the FDA to sort of move into to patients, and that's something we're still struggling with. I mean, it's similar to the Alzheimer's field right now, we are still struggling on that side as well uh, to come up with a, a therapy that really works uh, well, but there are certainly lots of clinical trials going on of a wide variety of different types of uh, drugs and also interventions, not just uh, drugs, but then, you know, how do we help people recover? And uh, there's things, you know, a lot of the rehab places, that's the other place probably where there's a lot of research going on. How do we help folks you know, recover from these types of injuries? And they have all different sorts of things from robots to you know, all different kinds of uh, tools to sort of help uh, the rehab for these, these, uh, these patients as well. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Dr. Lamb. The purpose of these talks is really to inform um, 
people about where research is at, um, what we should know um, from directly from you. Um, you've certainly given us a lot of information today. Um, and please do keep us abreast of any of the latest developments. I know this is a topic that comes up a lot in our community. It's one a lot of people are interested in, including myself as a mom. Um, so please keep us posted. And thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been nice to speak with you, and I look forward to future conversations. Great. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye.